All right, well, welcome to H2O. Um, like Brian said, my name's Sean. Um, it's really cool opportunity to be here with you guys this morning, um, just getting to worship together um, and, and getting to open up God's Word together. So um, like he said, we've been going through this Upside Down series. Uh, we've been looking at these things um, you know, things that we think as people or, or, or ideas that are, are prevalent in our culture, um, the, these prevalent like ideas or, or worldviews um, or, or patterns, and just seeing how the Lord um, takes those things and kind of turns them on their head. Um, so we've been looking at that all this summer. This is going to be our, our last opportunity to uh, uh, kind of take a look at, at one of those things. And, and I want to kind of jump into our, our last upside down by way of a story. Um, so when, when I was younger, um, I was an only child, and I credit that a little bit for my developing this desire to have my way. Um, you know, now I, I was blessed with my upbringing. You know, I, I didn't get um, denied a lot, actually. I was really fortunate in that way. But um, so when there, there were those, those times when, when I was just kind of having one of those brick wall moments and I just could not get what I wanted, you know, because I was a kid and not everything that I wanted was actually, like, good for me, um, you, you know, I, I would start to, like, connive, right, and, you know, like, do, do one of these deals and, and think, how far, then, is, is too far for me to get what I want, you know? How, how can I maybe bend the rules, like, just a little bit? I was, like, a pretty good kid, but if I could bend the rules, like, just a, a little bit, still get what I want, not get in trouble, not hurt anybody, hopefully, um, and, and, you know, kind of still have my way. So there was this one time. Um, did any of you guys play with uh, uh, trading cards as kids? Yeah, so for the, the uninitiated, basically what it is is these companies came up with this really good idea. So they combined collectibles, right, um, a game, and like a cash cow kids fad, right? So they put all these things together in outcome trading cards. So the, the idea is um, you buy these little foil packs of cards for like a bunch of money, um, and you open those up, and you hope that these little paper bits will either be foil and holographic and like really shiny and cooler than all the other kids, or you'll hope that it's like the one card that you need to be able to win in the game against your friends. And you keep doing this over and over and over again to spend lots and lots and lots of money and hopefully get the cards that you want um, until you have a deck large enough to play the game. It's a really cool concept, but it's also like totally, absolutely a cash grab. So. Anyway, I was really into this as a kid, and um, my friend, now he would always buy way more packs of cards than me. He would just constantly would have these packs and be opening them up. And so one time, he got an ultra-rare card. And so again, for the uninitiated, what that means is that in addition to it being like all foily and cool, like the name of the card was embossed in gold on the top. Ooh, ah. So that was really sweet, and I wanted that really bad. But... It was his and not mine. So again, start one of doing one of these. Well, maybe we can we can have a little match, and I can put up some of my cards, and he can put up some of his, his cards, which would of course include that one that I wanted, and then I would win at the card game and get his cards. It was totally legit, right? Except I knew I was going to win. Except. I didn't really know that I was going to win, especially since he bought more cards than I did. So he was probably going to beat me at the card game because he spent more money on the card game. So we probably have an equal footing at the card game. But again, my mission is not for me to lose stuff. My mission is to get stuff, right? So I don't want to play him at the card game. 
So what, what can I do to transfer my friend's possessions into my possessions? What can I do? Oh, I know. So we'll do, it's the same idea, but instead of playing the card game, we'll play Monopoly. Yeah, Monopoly. You know the most divisive board game like in all of human history? The most divisive game? Well, not the most divisive game ever conceived, but, you know, pretty much. So, so I challenged it. It's like, let's, let's play a game of Monopoly, and I'm going to see, you know, we'll see if you can win some cards off of me. And he agrees. And sure enough, my patience wins out, and I win. I managed to transfer my friend's possessions into my possessions. Mission accomplished. Now, it's really silly, obviously, but it's kind of a, it's a tendency that we as people actually have, right? You know, we, we have this tendency that um, we just want to sometimes selfishly collect things for ourselves. Um, we're good at amassing stuff. And now, obviously, you know, nothing is inherently wrong with stuff. It's not immoral or evil or anything like that. Um, you know, but we tend sometimes to be self-absorbed in, in our view on stuff and, and kind of our need to just have it. Um, and it's resulted in this marketing mantra, right, that, that says, you know, hey, I, I bet you didn't know you were discontent, did you? But, but you sure are. You need X, Y, Z thing. You need, to, you need to fill that void in your life with this stuff. Um, and if we're not careful, it can become you know, get, get, get. Uh, what's next? What's new? And, and we have very few voices other than that, saying like, hey, maybe don't. Maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe, maybe you can be selfless with your things. So that's like one tendency, one pull that we can kind of have. Another one um, is actually sort of the opposite, I feel like. Um, sometimes instead of just amassing stuff and getting stuff, people today can take a more sort of subdued approach. Uh, rather than like plotting and scheming, you know, to maximize our comfort or our enjoyment, we just sort of Take it easy, right? We just sort of go with the flow. There's no need to, to get all in a twist about stuff, right? I can just wait for the next thing. I can, I can ride that wave. I can wake up. I can go to work. I can get home. I can veg out and, you know, repeat that until Saturday. Um, I can wait until there are things that, like, absolutely need my attention before I, before I actually take care of those things. And then I can just get back to sort of, you know, hanging out. Rather than actively seeking to like, be helpful um, or to be productive or to work our hardest or to glorify God um, or really doing much of anything, we can be sort of passive. And I think these two different patterns, which are kind of like opposite of each other, I think they actually come from the same deficiency. Um, and it's a deficiency in stewardship, which we're going to see God turn upside down. And so now before we start, stewardship, it's not a word that we use too much outside of the Bible or maybe like environmentalism, um, but basically it, it's this old word that means manager or caretaker. To be a steward is to be somebody who manages or takes care of somebody else's stuff. Um, a steward is, is something that, being a steward is something that we are not always um, that good at, frankly. And we're going to take a look at our, our tenuous stewardship relationship with God. Um, and we're going to see how we can recover biblical stewardship um, and, and what it looks like today. The big idea we're going to see is that everything you have is God's. Everything you do is stewardship. And so leverage it for his glory. 
Everything you have is God's. Everything you do is stewardship, and so leverage that for his glory. And so uh, we're going to hit a few passages of Scripture as we talk about this. Um, but where I want to start is with this, this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 21, um, verses 33 through 43. So you can, you can follow along in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen behind me. So let's hear uh, what the Word of God says. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the people who were listening to him said, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. You know, so they're like, yeah, justice is going to happen. Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, the listeners, and given to a people producing its fruits. And so to, to give some context, you know, like who are the listeners? Um, Jesus' main point with this parable was to signal to the religious leaders who were listening to him that they had done messed up. They were given God's truth, they were given his blessing, and even his people to lead, um, but now they were unwilling to acknowledge Jesus and to defer to him. You know, the king had come back, and so, but the stewards weren't willing to defer to him and acknowledge him as king, um, and there would be consequences for their unwillingness. He wasn't teaching about stewardship per se, but the passage does demonstrate a failure of stewardship on their part. And I think there are some observations uh, we can make about the current state of stewardship uh, from this parable. So we're, we're going to look at a couple points from, from this passage. So first of all, all of the stuff belongs to the master of the house, God the Father. We, we know from the words of Scripture and just from like common sense about God's power that he created everything and everything belongs to him. Look at the details of the parable. Look at what it says. The master planted the vineyard. The master built the fence. The master dug the wine press. The master built the tower. It's all his. Everything is his. And there's, there's nothing wrong with him desiring, in, in the story, his share of the fruit that the tenants raised with his resources. And likewise, all the resources that, that we get to enjoy are his they come from the hand of God. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. And like the master, it's appropriate for God to have expectations of us, the ones who are using what's his. And so first off, everything belongs to the master. Secondly is, is our first response, the first response of the tenants, which is violence and sin. 
Two times the, the master sends multiple servants and so disproportionate from the master's reasonable request, hey, you're using my land, can I have some fruit? The tenants react with violence to the servants. Jesus was making reference to his father's servants, the prophets in the Old Testament, um, who taught God's people and they called them out when they went astray. And, and this is the way that people then reacted to those prophets um, with violence, not by, not by falling back in line with, with God and his good commands, but um, rejecting them. They reacted in the same way that the tenants do now. And likewise, God makes a reasonable command of us that's completely within his right. We, being created by him, should be in relationship with him. We should obey him. We should glorify him. This is what we were made to do. But how has humanity responded? Humanity as a whole has responded with that same violence, sin. Rather than give God what he deserves, you know, he who's been so good and gracious to us, who's provided for us, we react in violence. We put our own desires before his. And so back to the parable, we, we have a second response as people. The tenants have a second response. The master responds to all this by saying, I'll send my son. Maybe they just didn't respect my servants. Surely they'll respect my dignified heir. They'll understand I'm being serious when I send my son. But instead of giving him the respect that the master and the son deserve for their patience, they begin to scheme self-centeredly. Wait a minute, this is the heir. Like, we really want this stuff. If we get him out of the way, we'll be one step closer to having this place for our own. And so they kill the son. Again, Jesus is kind of blasting the religious leaders in Jerusalem who were clearly jealous of his influence. He knew that they wanted him out of the way so they could continue to lead. They could continue to have influence over the people. And so he demonstrated his knowledge by inserting himself into the parable. But we also act similarly to these tenets and religious leaders. When we persist in selfish stewardship of all that God's given us, our, our lives, our health, um, our, our influence, our resources, and, and on and on the list goes, it, it's not just sin, but it creates this separation between us and God. Rather than a relationship with Jesus and, and faithful stewardship of what he's given us, we persist in sin. We say that our own selfish gain is better than whatever God wants for us. And we see this in our world. We see people being lazy with their blessings. We, we see people amassing more and more for themselves personally. We see people struggling with or refusing to be generous to others. Uh, we see whole systems that are either driven or at least hijacked by greed and, and the desire to win over those who are weaker. We have a stewardship problem. And Long-term, God's response to that stewardship, just as in Jesus' parable, is, is punishment. If we persist in sin, if we misuse what God has given us, our sin earns us eternal separation and punishment from God. We have a stewardship problem. Left to our own devices, we're apparently bad managers and users of God's creation, showing violence to him and, and rejecting his kingship and relationship. This is rough. How do we recover the stewardship that God desires for us? What do we do about this problem that we have? In order to solve it, we need to see what stewardship was supposed to be. And so for that, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We see Adam and Eve, the first people, the first stewards, were made in the image of God. 
This is a central truth of the Bible, that people were made unique from the rest of creation, were made different, and they were given special dignity from God. And it's out of that image that our special task flows. It's out of the image of God that flows humanity's capacity to steward creation. So there's a, there's a little lesson in that. If we, if we ever feel like we need to kind of like puff up at people and, and say that we have some sort of innate like desire or, or right um, to, to lead or to get our way over another person, we can see the scripture says that the place that we get that is from God. God is the one that gives us um, our, our ability to steward. And so apart from him, we would have no right. And we've all been given that image of God. And so we don't have a, a right over somebody else to say, like, I deserve to get what I want over you. God has given that stewardship to everyone. And so we see in Genesis 1 that, that God gives dominion over all the animals um, to mankind. He provides the plants, his food, um, and he tasks the people. He says, multiply, subdue this wild world and, and rule it as a representative of your creator. And we see this actually play out. We see them start to do it. Uh, the Bible says that, that God parades all of the animal kingdom before Adam, and his decisions hold weight. Um, his decisions are affirmed by God. He names all these animals, and those are the names that they get. And this is especially true when Adam and Eve make the decision that ruins everything. You've likely heard the story before. Adam eats the fruit he's not supposed to eat. He signifies this distrust and rebellion against God. And it sets a pattern of sin that Adam's descendants, us, that we cannot break. His bad stewardship of the freedom and responsibility given to him by God results in a malfunction in our ability to lead and make decisions that persists to this day. So again, that's the, that's the problem. Adam is a poor representative, and that, that's been transmitted to us. However, it's not the end of the story. There's good news we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. It's, it, it's a little bit confusing, so it's kind of a doozy track with me. But listen to what Paul says. It's in Romans 5, 15 through 17. It'll come up behind me. It says, but the free gift, talking about what Jesus has done for us, is not like the trespass, what Adam did. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's one sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, that, that we're made right before God. Even though we've sinned so much, we have a way back to God. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So essentially what's going on here is that even though Adam's mistake had dire consequences, it brought sin into the world. It made all of us struggle with it. Jesus is better at every point. It's sort of like Donato's pizza. I know, it's, it's, this is a, a tricky subject of pizza preferences, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my cards on the table. If you're not familiar, it's a pizza chain based out of Columbus. It is the best chain pizza on every point. It's got soft center crust. It's crunchy but compact 
outer crust because I ordered pizza, not breadsticks. <laughs> Tangy and not sweet sauce. Very important. Sweet sauce. Gross. Um, it's a light pizza, so good toppings to bread ratio, edge-to-edge uh, -edge toppings. None of this, like, four pepperonis nonsense. It's better at every point than most other pizzas. And in a much more relevant and significant sense, like an actual important sense, Jesus is at every point the better representative for humanity. At every point where Adam has failed, and, and us too, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus was sinless where Adam sinned. Jesus met falsehood and hypocrisy with truth and love. Jesus selflessly died on the cross for our sins rather than shifting the blame like Adam did. And check out John 17, 6 and 7. This is Jesus talking to the Father. He's praying to him. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Jesus was a good steward. He was a better steward of what he was given, culminating in his steadfast march toward the cross. He could have run. He asked his father if he could not go to the cross, and yet he was obedient. He was obedient to the end. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. By accepting that gift from God, we are forgiven for our sin and stewardship mistakes. And we're given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to begin to live in line with God's intention for us. This is the gospel. We have a stewardship problem. We've made mistakes. We, we have this sort of hereditary problem as well. But through the gospel, through what Jesus has done, we can take hold of that gift and we can, we can turn around. We can begin to change those stewardship problems through what God has done. By getting off of the throne and having Jesus take his rightful place in our lives. Our sins are wiped clean. We're empowered to live out God's original design. So recovering true stewardship begins nowhere but in Jesus. We have to start with him. So like that's how, but you know, what, what does it look like? What are some practical ways that we can begin to live out that true stewardship? We've talked before at H2O about um, honoring God with your time, talent, and treasure. Some of you guys may have heard that before. Just run through it real quick. Um, so Ephesians 5.16 tells us to make the best of the time because the days are evil. So like morally challenging times, like the times that we live in, challenge us to use our time in just the, the sharpest way that we can to glorify God. It's time. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20, gives us this analogy of the church as a body. It says that, that everyone in the church, along with their unique personality, their skills, and their spiritual gifts, are needed in order for the church to function. Just like a body is weaker without one of its parts, so the church is better when we all are, are working together, when we're using what we have for the good of one another, for the good of the whole. Talents, time and talents. In Mark 12, 41 through 44, there's a scene where Jesus is watching people put money in the collection box, and he commends not the, the wealthy people necessarily, but this widow who puts two little coins in the offering box because he says, while the wealthy gave out of their margin, she gave all that she had. And so stewarding our, our time, our talent, our treasure, it's a pretty comprehensive way, honestly, to think about biblical stewardship, this true stewardship. But the Bible is filled with other ways that we can steward well what God has given us. So uh, this list is not exhaustive, but here's just a, a couple ways that, that we can think about. So one, 
the first job that humanity was given was to steward the planet on which we live. And we actually still have that job as a people, as humans. Now, often certain like scientific or political views have kind of been like at odds or, you know, we've had some, we've had some hard conversations about this as a people, but I think without even broaching those subjects, without even digging into that, following some of God's first commands and taking responsible care of creation seems to be a wise decision, a way that we can steward what we've been given by the Lord. If what we're doing as individuals or as a society is having a negative effect on God's earth, it's no good. How can we adjust our lives to steward the planet well? So that's one way. Another way is our positions of authority and influence. So if you manage a store or a restaurant, um, if you're leading a group project or at school or work, um, if you're a parent, if you run a business, if you hold public office, if you just have a group of people that like listen um, and act on what you say, you have influence and you have a responsibility to use that influence wisely. Does your influence build people up? Does your influence create benefits for the people who are above you and the people who are below you? Or are you just sort of filling a role? Are you just manager because you used to be an employee and now you got promoted? Even in your friend groups, are you encouraging your friends? Are you challenging them um, to, to seek the higher good, especially to, to please and, and honor and glorify God? This is another area that we have stewardship responsibility over, these positions of authority that, that we have. And, and the last one that I wanted to sit on for a minute um, is this area of opportunities. There's this parable that I want to look at in the Gospel of Luke that, frankly, is like a little weird. It's kind of it's kind of confusing to me. Uh, you can find it in Luke 16, 1 through 13. I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase it for you. So Jesus talks about this dishonest manager, right? The, the manager was doing a bad job. He was wasting the master's resources. So the master says, "All right, you're done. Turn in your books. You're not manager anymore." The manager is like, "Oh no, this is this is a problem." <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not cut out for manual labor. I am too proud to beg, and so I have a problem. I need to figure out how I can turn this into a win for myself. Um, and so then that's when he realizes, wait a minute, I have the manager's book still. I have the list of all of the debtors who owe my master money. And so one by one, he goes to these debtors, and he says, how much do you owe, 100? Just write me a check for 50. Hurry. He didn't actually write a check, but you know what I mean. He says just, he, he slashed these debts in half and said, take care of it now. So whether, you know, little, and little did they know that, that he hadn't actually been authorized by the master to give these discounts or to do this, but he had, he had dishonestly done this on his own initiative. Whether it was just to sort of associate himself with forgiving some of the debt, sort of like ingratiate himself to them a little bit, um, or, or making them accomplices in his deception, whatever he was like intending to do, the manager used what was available to him to create an advantage for himself. So now Jesus didn't approve of his dishonesty, you know, and, and the manager says like, hey, you shouldn't have done this, but he commended this seizing of the opportunity. The, the fact that the manager said, okay, I have a problem. What is around me that I can use to create a win? In a few places, the Bible seems to point out that like people in the secular world seem to be much more willing to do whatever it takes. And, and they're doing it for stuff that doesn't always matter. How much more so should we be willing to be creative, strategic for God's mission and God's glory, something that has eternal weight? God gives us so many opportunities. 
you live next to people, just like by default, by virtue of the way the world works, you live next to people that need friendship or a church to go to um, or even to know Jesus for the first time. There are people at your workplace, people in the coffee shops you frequent, needs in your community, both spiritual and physical and relational. Soon we're going to have thousands of students descending on Bowling Green who need to know Jesus, who need a community, um, who even need help just like adjusting to college and adult life for the first time. The local schools are going to be back in session. There's going to be a bevy of teachers and coaches and other parents to meet. God has placed opportunities everywhere. Like, honestly, frankly, it's, it's a little bit convicting for me and overwhelming the amount of opportunities that we have, and even just to be up here saying these to you. But the question is, will you be faithful with what you have? Start with one opportunity God has given you and leverage it for his glory. Meet a neighbor. Pray for a teacher. Attend an event. The opportunities are everywhere, so start just somewhere. And I think as it's sort of becoming clear, this is the main thrust that really all of life is something to steward for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Unlike our tendencies to either steward God's stuff to our own selfish gain um, or our opposite tendency to, to shirk our duties and, and be passive, allow God to turn it upside down into this outward and intentional, on purpose, focus leveraging God's gifts for his glory. And so uh, as we close, I want to leave us with two pictures of, of what we talked about this morning. The first one is from the Lord of the Rings series. Um, if you haven't read these books or watched these films, I would, I would highly recommend them. Like, they're both excellent, first off, and they're littered with these pictures of Christ. They're littered with pictures of our battle against, like, sin and evil and, and the honor of a courageous and Christ-like life. So if you're looking for some fiction reading that will actually like bless your faith, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, and Pilgrim's Progress are three must-reads, so you can just file that away. Anyway, for those of you who aren't familiar with Lord of the Rings, it's the story of this world that's threatened by a once-defeated general who's trying once again to sort of subjugate the world under his rule. One of the things keeping him from just sort of running amok um, is this powerful border kingdom that stands between his land of Mordor and the rest of the world. And so it's sort of like the last bastion of hope. The kingdom of Gondor is, is what it's called. And in, in the capital city of Gondor, there's this towering white fortress, and it used to be ruled by a king and his steward. When the king was away on war or at business, um, the steward would rule the kingdom. And when the king came back, he, it, things would return to normal and the king would rule. One day, the king didn't come back. And the stewards have been ruling in the city ever since. They, they always led with the agreement that they would give up the throne back to the king should he return. And these stewards, they used to be wise and, and strong um, and diligent, upright rulers, just like the kings had been. And the steward, the most recent steward, his name's Denethor, uh, he was the same way until he became corrupted by pride, power, and short-sightedness. And so in this clip that we're about to see, um, the wizard Gandalf, he's urging Denethor, the steward, to, you know, gather the forces of good to defend against evil. And I want to I show you a clip of, of his reaction to this wise counsel 
and rumors that a man named Aragorn might have a claim to the throne. So let's watch. War is coming. The enemy is on your doorstep. As steward, you are charged with the defense of this city. Where are Gondor's armies? You still have friends. You are not alone in this fight. Send word to Theoden of Rohan. Light the beacons. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. Do you think the eyes of the White Tower are blind? I have seen more than you know. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor. And with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. Last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. The rule of Gondor is mine, and no others. Turned to vain ambition. He wasn't. He wasn't even king, and yet he simply refused to let go. One of my favorite parts of the clip. Did you notice the throne? There was this empty white throne, kind of in the background, waiting for the return of the true king. Even the steward refuses to give up his rule, even if he he refuses that. It's secondary. It's always below the true king. So let's contrast Denethor with King David from the scripture. After David collects a massive amount of wealth for his son Solomon to use to build up the temple, he prays over the offering, and here's what he says. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you were exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Here's the, here's the, the money quote right here. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. Will we follow the example of Denethor or of David? Will we clutch with white knuckles what isn't actually ours? Or will we follow David in acknowledging the Lord as king and freely give what we can't keep? Everything you have is God's. Everything you do is stewardship. Leverage it for his glory. Let's pray.